Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on June 8, 2022. Today, we will be joined by Paul Dozier, a director in the Guggenheim Investments Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. Paul has been doing some interesting work on the performance of equity markets during midterm election years, and he's here to talk with us about that, as well as provide an update on the latest economic data. We will also hear from Cameron Crosby, a managing director who heads up our foreign exchange and derivatives trading desk. Cameron is the firm's eyes and ears on the currency markets, and he will be sharing with us what he is seeing and hearing. Later in the episode, we will answer a listener's question about the neutral rate. Now, if you have a question for one of our guests, please send it to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer it either on air on a future episode or offline. But now, let's get to our chat with Paul Dozier. Let's listen in. Welcome, Paul, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Jay. Glad to be here. Now, Paul, before we talk about your work on markets in midterm election years, uh, bring us up to date on the most recent economic data. Um, in specific, uh, what did we learn from the jobs data last Friday? The jobs report was good news for the Fed. It showed that the job market is still very strong, but the pace of job gains is moderating and wage growth is cooling, which could ease inflation pressure if it continues. Diving into the details, non-farm payrolls came in at 390,000 new jobs, down somewhat from the upwardly revised April print of 436,000. Gains were led by the leisure and hospitality, professional services, and transportation and warehousing sectors, while we see some job losses in retail trade. Meanwhile, the headline unemployment rate held steady for the third straight month at 3.6%, likely held in place by improved labor supply. On that, we've been expecting labor supply to improve as people who've remained on the sidelines ran down savings that were built up during the pandemic from stimulus and from deferred services related purchases. And it appears we're just now starting to see that with labor market participation ticking higher to 62.3%. So more people are moving off the sidelines and looking for jobs again, which should ease some of the pressures that have built up in the labor market. And related to that, improvements in labor supply may also finally be putting a cap on wage growth, with month-over-month -month average hourly earnings remaining at 0.3%, down from monthly averages of about 0.5% late last year and earlier this year. Now, let's stay with this subject for one more minute, Paul. Are there any other angles of insight into the strength of the job market? Other data are hinting at what could amount to be some softening in the labor market in the months ahead. Job openings for April were slightly lower than the March print. And although the non-farm payrolls data showed strong growth in filled positions in the leisure and hospitality sector, the number of job openings in that sector are now declining. And that could presage fewer job openings in other sectors. And conference board consumer confidence for May declined from April, driven by decreases in both the expectations and present situation components. The decline in the present situation component of the survey was driven entirely by concerns about the labor market, with the net percentage of respondents saying that jobs were plentiful versus hard to get, 
falling from 44.7% to 39.3%. That's still an overall positive view of the jobs market, but it's not quite as rosy as in prior months. So labor conditions here in the US may be coming off the boil, which is good since tight conditions contribute to inflationary pressures. That said, conditions remain pretty tight. We'll need to see looser conditions and slower wage growth for the Fed to become more comfortable. But well, Paul, in the meantime, uh, what do we have to look forward to on the data front? In overseas data, Eurozone CPI hit an all-time high of 8.1%, up from April, from the April print of 7.5%. High food and fuel prices are driving the headline print. We're seeing increasingly hawkish rhetoric coming from the ECB, with President Christine Lagarde practically guaranteeing liftoff in July, with another rate hike in September. All told, more than four rate hikes are priced in for the remainder of the year. COVID cases in China have fallen precipitously and movement restrictions are being lifted in most cities, which should provide some near-term relief to the economy. It should also alleviate supply chain pressures originating in China as a result of lockdowns. Looking ahead to next week, we'll be attuned to the US May CPI data on Friday to see if March was indeed the peak in year-over-year prints. We'll also be getting June University of Michigan sentiment survey results on Friday. Now, how do all these data play into Fed policy from here? Well, last week, Cleveland Fed President Mester and board members Brainerd and Waller threw cold water on the notion introduced by Atlanta Fed President Bostic the week before last that the Fed could possibly pause rate hikes in September. And Bostic himself has subsequently clarified that a pause would only occur if inflation came down significantly over the summer, an outcome that we view as being somewhat remote. Regardless of the outcome, we expect relatively high inflation and a generally hawkish Fed will be with us for a while. Well, thanks for that macro update, Paul. Now, let's turn to a different subject. Fed policy, of course, is a driver of market performance, uh, which is why we talk about it all the time. But in 2022, the question that is begged is, do midterm elections have any impact on markets? Well, according to our analysis, it definitely appears that they do. I looked at market performance of the S&P 500 during election and non-election years, going back to 1946. And U.S. equities have exhibited patterns around U.S. elections and particularly around midterm elections. Equities tend to underperform during all election years versus non-election years. They do even worse leading up to midterm elections in those years. Going into the details, in the 300 days prior to midterm elections, basically the first 300 days of the year from January 1st through the first week of November, average total return for equities has been just 1.3%. In the 300 days prior to presidential election, uh, equities returned 5.0%. And in non-election years, stocks have historically returned 7.8% during the same time periods. However, in the six months after election, uh, after midterm elections, equities tend to outperform strongly. Equities have rallied on average 14% after midterm elections versus 4.2% after presidential elections and just 4.0% during the same time periods in non-election years. There's definitely a disparity here uh, between midterm election years, presidential election years, and non-election years. So what do you think is driving this behavior? Well, I have a few theories. 
midterms tend to go against the party that holds the White House. It could be that a change in leadership in Congress is viewed favorably by investors as well as voters. Investors also seem to prefer some degree of opposition within Congress. Mixed government is perceived as being better than uh, one party controlling everything. And what I mean by mixed government is that the party that doesn't hold the White House takes or retains control of at least one chamber of Congress. The fact that people tend to prefer mixed government could be related to the notion that big changes like tax reforms, healthcare legislation, et cetera, typically get passed when just one party controls both chambers of Congress and the White House. So it could be that when they see one party take or retain control of everything, they get nervous that big changes are afoot. That doesn't necessarily uh, mean that those big changes aren't good for the economy, but people do tend to fear change leading up to it. Do you have data to support this theory? Well, stocks tend to outperform after midterms resulting in mixed control of government. Stocks have returned on average 14.5% in the six months after midterms that resulted in mixed control of government. In contrast, stocks have gained 11.2% in the six months after midterms that resulted in just one party controlling the White House and both chambers of Congress. It could also be that investors see elections as risk events, so stocks underperform leading up to it and outperform after. But that doesn't seem to hold up around presidential elections, which should arguably be bigger risk events uh, than midterm elections. So that part of it remains a bit of a mystery. Again, these are just theories that are partially backed up by the data. In your work, Paul, did you uncover any other interesting data points? Yeah, one that's applicable to this year is that leading up to midterms that happen during Fed tightening cycles, uh, stocks unsurprisingly underperform versus during other midterms when the Fed isn't tightening. However, stocks do well after the election, even when the Fed is tightening. We saw that during five election cycles that coincided with Fed tightening cycles. Namely, that happened in 1974, 78, 94, 06, and 2018. Another one that could be applicable to where we are now, since we believe a recession may be looming toward the end of 2023, is that stocks don't tend to be held back too much during midterm years that precede recessions. Uh, that said, the data supporting that view comprised just three election years, um, namely 1958, 78, and 2006. Paul, uh, this is really uh, good work here, and we threw a lot of numbers out. So please just state again how markets typically have performed in midterm election years and what can be expected after the election. And is this year conforming to historical patterns so far? Sure. So to summarize, with a total return of just 1.3%, Equities have historically underperformed during the 300 days leading up to midterm elections relative to presidential election years or non-election years. But equities have historically outperformed in the six months following a midterm election, averaging 14% gains, which is much better than during the same periods in presidential election years and non-election years. And if, as a result of midterms, the opposition party take control of one or both chambers of Congress, which happens more often than not, equities did even better over the six months following the election with a total return of 14.5%. As for how things are looking for this year, it's looking likely that Republicans will take at least one chamber of Congress, if not both. 
So we'll probably end up with mixed government, which markets tend to like. But the Fed has also embarked on an aggressive campaign to tighten monetary policy. So there are a lot of cross currents out there. Summing it all up, based on the data, we should expect the market to underperform from the start of the year up to election day. But given that the S&P 500 is already down about 13% year to date, the market could actually rally somewhat between, uh, between now and election day, and it would still conform with the historical data. So between now and election day, the market could seemingly go either way. But one thing that does seem a bit more clear, at least based on the data, is that we should expect to see equities do pretty well in the six months after the election. And that could also coincide with the point at which we see the Fed downshift from 50 basis points rate hikes to 25 basis points uh, rate hikes, which may also boost sentiment. But as they say, past performance is no guarantee of future results. No guarantee at all. But uh, thank you very much for all the work that you've done here, Paul. And, and thanks again for your time. Uh, we hope you'll come again and visit soon. Thanks, Jay. Glad to be here. Thanks, Paul Dozier. Next up, we have Cameron Crosby to bring us the latest on foreign exchange. Take it away, Cameron. Thanks, Jay. Since the summer of 2021, the dollar has rallied significantly, peaking about a month ago and since coming off roughly 2.5%, coinciding with the bounce in equities and other risk assets. Dollar-yen spot has made new 20-year highs despite this sell-off in the dollar over the last month. Its correlation with 10-year U.S. rates has remained very strong. This has pushed implied volatility on the currency pair higher and moved the risk reversal from bid for puts to bid to calls. As we continue to move higher, expect implied vols and the risk reversal both to continue to trade higher. Earlier this month, we had the Bank of Canada outhawk the market with a 50 basis point hike. This has put a bid into CAD at the same time as the dollar has been on the back foot. So we've seen a rather decent move in dollar CAD. Just this week, the RBA, which is the Central Bank of Australia, uh, hiked by 50 basis points versus just the 35 priced in the market ahead of the event. While the move on the currency pair was rather limited, given the rhetoric was not quite as hawkish as the actual move, we continue to see central banks across the G10 space moving towards 50 basis point hikes. It will be interesting to see how the ECB reacts as they meet this month and then are likely to hike come July for the first time in many years. The market is debating now whether they hike 25 or 50 basis points. Looking forward, Friday's U.S. CPI report is center on investors' minds and will likely derive the directionality of the front-end rates in the U.S. as central bankers will need to determine how much hikes will continue into the future. This, in turn, will drive the dollar either higher or lower, depending on how hot inflation continues to print. In EM, Emerging Market FX, the year has been rather mixed, mostly on idiosyncratic stories such as Russia. In short-term interest rates, we have UST bills trading very rich versus federal funds OIS. We like lending our dollars in the cross-currency market via asset swaps on non-dollar or non-US government bills, especially over quarter-end 
In short-term interest rates, U.S. T-bills are very rich versus Fed funds OIF. As such, and investors will look for alternatives on where they can lend their dollars in the short-term space, maintaining high liquidity. One of our favorite places is leveraging the cross-currency market via asset swaps on non-U.S. government bills, especially over quarter end. This allows an investor to maintain a similar liquidity profile, not quite as liquid as U.S. T-bills, but in the same ballpark, and pick yield versus OIS rather than give yield versus OIS in the T-bills. In a slightly more off-the-run version of the trade, the Israeli shekel is very interesting. Short-term bonds here are not as liquid as G10 government bonds. However, the FX basis is particularly wide given local banks' structured demand for dollar funding currently, given their derivative book setup on U.S. equities versus their local customers. Here you can pick up even more yield, or here an investor can pick up even more yield than alternatively in Europe and Japanese asset swaps. With that, I'll hand it back to you, Jay. Thank you. Thanks, Cameron Crosby. Now, before we wrap up this week, we have a listener question to answer. Our question comes from Nicholas in Maryland, who had a question for Matt Bush, our U.S. economist and a guest on episode 14 of Macro Markets. Nicholas asks, what is the neutral rate and why is it so difficult to calculate? Here's Matt's answer. The neutral rate is the hypothetical interest rate that is neither stimulative nor restrictive to the economy. As a monetary policy concept, the Fed will seek to set policy rates above the neutral rate if the economy is running hot, like it is now, or below the neutral rate if the economy is running below full capacity. No one can be certain of what the neutral rate is, especially in real time, because it is an unobservable variable that can only be inferred from the behavior of other macroeconomic data, data that are subject to reporting delays and revisions. And the neutral rate is a moving target, subject to secular forces that impact desired levels of savings and investment, forces that are difficult to gauge in real time, such as demographic shifts, inequality, or productivity. Now, Matt says that he thinks the real neutral rate is around 0% currently. So the nominal Fed funds rate should be much higher now, considering how high inflation is. The Fed has recognized that policy has been much too easy, which explains their, quote, expeditious pace of rate hikes currently underway. Well, thanks to Matt for his answer, and thanks to Nicholas for sending in your question. If any other listener has a question or questions for our podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer them, either on air on a future episode or offline. Now, my thanks once again to Paul Dozier and Cameron Crosby for joining us today, and thanks to all of you who joined us for this podcast. I'm Jay Diamond. And we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, 
Visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the following affiliated investment management businesses. Guggenheim Partners Investment Management LLC, Security Investors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Investment Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Partners Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Corporate Funding LLC, Guggenheim Partners Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Fund Management Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Japan Limited, GS Gamma Advisors LLC, and Guggenheim Partners India Management.